Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, J.F. and I are discussing the composer, producer, artist, and conceptualist Brian Eno, focusing on his 1978 album Ambient One, Music for Airports, but also touching on his Oblique Strategies card deck, which we consult from time to time during this episode. Brian Eno is a big figure for both of us. He's a big figure for the art world at large, so big it's hard to fit all of him in the frame. The man has collaborated on some of the greatest albums of the past half-century, including David Bowie's Low and Heroes, U2's The Joshua Tree, and Talking Heads' Fear of Music. His own solo albums constitute one of the most formidable oeuvres of any living composer, but, as Lester Bangs wrote, listing all the projects he's been involved with in his career so far is a bit like trying to enumerate the variegate colors and patterns on a lizard's back. Eno is one of those McLuhanish figures who, right from the jump, saw the pattern in the media maelstrom and learned how to surf it. In this, he is comparable to Glenn Gould, William Gibson, and McLuhan himself, all of whom we have discussed in earlier episodes of the show. Like McLuhan, Eno is a thinker of the background. Inspired by cybernetic thinkers like Stafford Beer, Eno reconceived composition as the engineering of self-regulating systems like the system of non-synchronous tape loops that generates much of Ambient One, music for airports. He also conceived of music as being itself a part of larger environmental systems, for example, as music in an airport. Not only that, Eno has also thought deeply about how human consciousness is being shaped by these spaces. Like I said, he's a thinker of the background. Here's an example. One of Eno's projects is the Long Now Foundation a collaboration with Stuart Brand. Shout out to our buddy Michael Garfield, a long now kind of guy who used to work for them. Rather than attacking any particular manifestation of short-sightedness, the Long Now Foundation tries to approach the root of the problem, our species' difficulty in thinking longer timescales. To this end, the Long Now Foundation has begun a number of projects, including the Clock of the Long Now, which is intended to keep time for 10,000 years. One of Eno's solo albums, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now, shows us what the music for such a clock might sound like. There's a through line from the beautifully eerie sounds of this album to the background notion of the Long Now, and it is Eno's peculiar accomplishment that we cannot define his project as either the concept nor the concept's manifestation in music. It is the through line between them, the pattern of unfolding from background to foreground, itself a kind of cybernetic process that is the thing to keep in our minds. Again, it's hard to fit all of Brian Eno into any one frame. In what follows, J.F. and I try to find the through line from the gentle, uncanny sounds of ambient one and discrete music through the multifocal attention within which this music can take on different meanings and forms to the place we end up, thinking about Eno's ambient music as a specimen of the arts of immersion and virtuality 
that are the most characteristic cultural productions of our age. This last conversational direction is informed by a piece of writing I've been working on called The Wanderer, Public Musicology Abroad in the Wilds of Content, and the title alone will remind our regular listeners of ideas we have developed on the show. The Wanderer as an emblem for the kind of intellectual work that podcasting represents, what content means, and what it is to make a valid scholarly contribution in the domain of content. I'm delivering this talk at my department's colloquium series this Friday, but I always like to do a dry run of my talks ahead of time, and I had a thought that running it on Zoom for our Patreon folks might be a fun thing to do. So that's what I'm doing. Consider yourself invited to my talk, which will take place this very night, Wednesday, February 2nd, at 7 p.m. in the U.S. Eastern Time Zone, which, for some unaccountable reason, Indiana is in. My talk is about 45 minutes long, and there will be an open-ended period for questions and discussion afterwards. If you're a Patreon supporter of the show, you can find the Zoom link on our Patreon page. If you're not a supporter but want to hear my essay, well, now's your chance to join. Our Patreon page has written and audio content stacked up to the ceiling, and this year, JF and I are hoping to do more online live events like the one we're doing today. So there's lots of reasons to join, even if you don't believe that our Patreon makes possible what we do on Weird Studies, which, for the record, it totally does. If you're already a supporter, thanks so much, and if you're not, you're missing out. But hey, you can do something about that. Okay, on with the show. Season 5, Episode 2. Brian motherfucking Eno! <laughs> Ambient music, motherfuckers! <laughs> I'm gonna get all amped and stoked and pumped and hyped about ambient music. The most gentle goddamn music ever made. Gentle, gentle music. I've been listening to it on my walks. I had a brief kind of Brian Eno phase years and years ago. There's a documentary called Imaginary Landscapes. Have you seen it? No. It's a documentary on Brian Eno. I kept meaning to let you know about it. Oh, man, I didn't even know that existed. Sorry. I did I not do my due diligence. Yeah. It's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Not for any particular reason. I think just because Brian Eno is a fascinating person. So I watched it again this week, and then I just listened to the album a few times while walking. And um, it's really a beautiful piece of work. I mean, it was your idea to do a show on it. So maybe we could start with you kind of giving us the context for your suggestion that we, we take that on as a topic. problem with having a show called Weird Studies is that it sets up the expectation that everything we talk about is going to be weird in some more or less canonical haunted house kind of way. And No, but this kind of is kind of haunted <laughs> we'll get In a there. way, we'll get yeah. There. Not on the surface, I agree. Not at first. Well, on uh, the surface, it's like ambient music is like, that's the chill music that you listen to while you study. Right. I've never understood that, by the way, the idea of listening to music while you study. I cannot concentrate I've on reading. I've never been able to do playing. that. I can't read if I'm listening to music. No, no. Yeah. Too much. Too yeah. much stuff going on. But yeah, ambient music, or even not just Brian Eno's albums that are called ambient music, Ambience 1 through 4, which 
includes music for airports, which is the nominal focus of this conversation, although I'm planning on talking about other pieces of ambient or non-ambient music by Brian Eno. For that matter, I think we might talk about his Oblique Strategies deck, yes. which you received for Christmas and which I got a copy of a while ago. My brother Pierre-Yves gave me a copy for Christmas. I was not expecting that. I'm so happy he did that. It's a lovely gift. I, I, so it's one of those things like you keep meaning to get for yourself, right? But it's, I don't know, it's the type of thing you want to be, you want someone to give you the Oblique Strategies deck. So what it is, is Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt, Peter Schmidt's a visual artist, a collaborator and friend of Eno's. In what was it, 1980 something? This came out right at the end of the 70s, right? Can't remember which year in the 70s, around the same time as uh, Music for Airports, within a few yeah, it's true. years, yeah. So, it's a deck of really plain cards, each of which contains a I don't know, uh, a gnomic utterance, a piece of advice, a, a cosmic truth. And it's meant to help creators just switch gears or think of their work from some new angle or, you know, um, like I'll give you an example here. I just picked one at random and I love it. It's got this like sans serif aerial font. The back of the card is totally black and then you turn it around, it's white and there's a bit of type there. So it says, make a sudden destructive, unpredictable action. Incorporate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just oh, love man. So let's say you're writing a piece or composing a piece of music and you're stuck. Well, you pick one of these oblique strategies cards and it gives you an oblique strategy. It gives you some way of thinking about your work that might get you out of your rut or make you see it from a new angle. And it's it's funny because yesterday... It's Fiona, a creative tool. It is. It's a great creative tool. It's an actual useful creative tool. I find I love the tarot. And we just did an episode on the tarot. I love the tarot, but I found it less than helpful in situations where I was working on, I mean, your mileage may vary here, but in my experience, if I'm working on a piece or a story, or I'm trying to come up with ideas for something and I use the tarot, I just get more confused. It hasn't helped me in that way, personally, mm. for myself. Mm. I Ching's a little better, but mm. but this, however... It's not divination. It's more like advice. It's like a book in card format, but it's uh, it's fantastic. Well, it is divination in the sense that it might be telling you what's wrong with your project right now. Yes. Yes. You know, for example, that last card that you read, the sudden destructive action, you know, perhaps the problem with the current state of your creative work is that you are too afraid of leaving things on the cutting room floor. This is a problem that I notice all the time with my doctoral advisees there's a certain terror of ever leaving any of your ideas behind because you're always you always have that scarcity mindset you're afraid that like maybe these are all the ideas i have and better make use of all of them and under those circumstances what you need to be told is uh that it's okay go ahead and break something yeah because it's fine there's more where that came from so it could be a kind of divination oh the the act is divinatory uh and the coincidence of your state with the advice on the card is definitely grounds for calling this a kind of divination system. I just meant it's not esoteric in the sense that it's not a codified occult system that I need to interpret. Well, and this brings me back to what I was saying before, which is that Brian Eno is not weird in the in the way that fucking Alistair Crowley is weird. However, he does things that kind of, without having, as it were, the branding of the weird are themselves nevertheless strongly resonant with so many of the things we talk about 
on this show, oh, yeah. not least of which divination. We've already given an example. But, you know, I wanted to talk about his ambient music. And, you know, like I said before, focusing on music for airports, but not restricted to that. We can also talk about discrete music. And for that matter, albums like Foreign After Science or Another Green World, which have passages of stasis and calm. But my point is that that idea of ambient music as seemingly inoffensive and unthreatening as it might be, nevertheless, packs a kind of an interesting punch, which has something to do with attention, yeah. human attention. We've been thinking a lot about attention, both sometimes intermittently on the show, and certainly as a culture, because we are in what is called an attention economy, where the currency is your attention, your eyeballs. And you have, I love this line from the Alex McKendrick film, The Sweet Smell of Success, the greedy murmur of little men. We right. have the greedy murmur of little men in our ears 24-7. They would project that shit into our dreams if they could. They're working on it. Yeah, they're working on the technical means of doing so. And a constant babble of things vying for our attention. And, you know, we all know what clickbait is, right? The basic con of our age where something looks interesting and you click on it and there's nothing there, but like somebody's tweet has been repackaged in the form of a BuzzFeed list or some shit. <laughs> Classic kind of bait and switch in the era of content. Right. We're used to all of those shell games that get played on us that have to do with people trying to capture and monetize our attention. But the idea that we live in a world where attention is an object to be manipulated and to be understood in a kind of complex, multifaceted way, Eno was kind of early to that party. Yeah. Because I feel like the basic innovation of his idea of ambient music is not even the kind of quasi-cybernetic systems he created in order to generate it, but just the observation that attention can work at different focal distances. You can listen to something, a piece of music, with absolute diamond-hard focus, listening to all the themes. And I mean, this is what, you know, the philosopher Theodore Adorno called the expert listener, somebody who is attentive to each moment of music's unfolding while also taking up each moment into memory, into a kind of a higher-order memory that holds all of these details together in a kind of a a lattice work. And, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, etc., these are composers who the choices they make in their music reflect the assumption that there is a kind of a connoisseur who's going to be listening to this and listening for a lot of special moments and cool things and details. But Eno's real realized before practically anybody else that there's a lot more kinds of attention than that. There's also middle ground attention, like what I just described as a kind of extreme foreground attention where the object is, as it were, you know, five inches in front of your nose. But what about a middle ground attention where, you know, you're listening to it, but you're maybe you're chopping onions while listening to a favorite album, kind mm -hmm. of a middle ground thing. How about listening to music while you're studying? Yeah, that's listening more in the background. Yeah. What about the music that's playing in a 7-Eleven when you go in to get a Slim Jim? You might not even know that there's music playing, and yet somehow later in the day find yourself humming Sweet Home Alabama right. under your breath and wondering where that came from. 
And so like attention is a spectrum that goes from the foreground of your attention, the foreground of your mind, a kind of full occupation of your intentional ego sliding all the way back to subliminal and unconscious realms. Exactly. And Eno in his idea of ambient music is basically like, well, what if you wrote music that can hang out at a variety of focal distances, attentional focal distances? I think he is one of the most interesting and sophisticated, I don't know, philosophers of creativity and consciousness in the arts, at least of the last, you know, generation. Like, Whenever he's talking about the creative process, as we just mentioned, sort of when we were talking about the Oblique Strategies deck, or whenever he talks about music and society, how music is received, how music works on us and through us, he is just like a font of kind of like wisdom and a type of wisdom that I associate with the magical tradition, which, you know, has Mm. always been concerned with attention. Yeah, The manipulation of attention and the mastery of attention is the crux of the magical work. And I'm using magic broadly here to include most religious traditions, which technically speaking are magical in the sense that they try to focus and direct attention on multiple levels in a multi-sensory fashion in order to bring forth a, a very specific experience. And he he was aware of this, but he was also reacting. This is what I found interesting from reading the liner notes that he wrote for the first ambient album, Music for Airports, is that he had noticed that canned music companies were already aware of this. Yes. And had been producing music of a specific kind in order to serve the interests of like, you know, I don't know, commercial enterprise, capitalism, whatever you want to call it. Well, like if you're running a factory and your workers are kind of stressed out, maybe you want to have some relaxing music playing so they're more productive. Yeah, Yeah, this is an example, but also just using music in shopping malls and in stores. And that had already begun at that point. That was already underway. And what he's trying to do with his ambient album is to fight that to a certain extent. He wrote, Whereas the extant canned music companies proceed from the basis of regularizing environments by blanketing their acoustic and atmospheric idiosyncrasies, ambient music, a term he coined, by the way, ambient music is intended to enhance these. Whereas conventional background music is produced by stripping away all sense of doubt and uncertainty, and thus all genuine interest from the music, ambient music retains these qualities. And whereas their intention is to brighten the environment by adding stimulus to it, thus supposedly alleviating the tedium of routine tasks and leveling out the natural ups and downs of the body rhythms, ambient music is intended to induce calm and a space to think. So he's saying, whereas canned music tends to serve a kind of like something that I would call artifice, it tends to consolidate a striated codified space in order to make it perform better. So for instance, like you were saying, you want your factory workers to improve their performance. You'll have music that makes them forget that they're in a factory. He thinks ambient music should interact with the environment such that you become more conscious, more attentive to the idiosyncrasies of a particular environment. So there's a kind of political dimension to the project, which I found interesting, but it goes much further than this. But I'm just all this by way of saying that although he was the first artist, I think, to articulate these ideas, it seems that some forces out there were already 
using ambient music. <laughs> you know, we're already creating a kind of ambient music meant to further the ends of control, let's call it, in a political or sociopolitical or economic way. So here's an interesting question. What do you suppose would happen if I just put ambient one gently in the background while we had this conversation? Because I it's possible. Know. We're having this conversation over Zoom, and it's easy enough to have music playing in the background. Do you want to try it? Yeah, let's try to it. See what happens? Okay. Give me a sec to set it up. And listeners at home, you might want to put it on while you're listening to this conversation. Who knows what'll happen? I will say, while I'm setting this up, Eno's idea of the interaction with the space that this music would midwife was, to put it mildly, rather different from the calculations of a music company oh, yeah. executive. And this is a quote from his liner notes for ambient music. I'm reading it in its reprinted form from a book called A Year with Swollen Appendices, which contains Eno's diaries for a year from the late 1990s and includes a bunch of essays. A fun book, which I recommend to your attention. He writes, in late 1977, I was waiting for a plane in Cologne Airport. Early on a sunny, clear morning, the place was nearly empty, and the space of the building, designed, I believe, by the father of one of the founders of Kraftwerk, was very attractive. I started to wonder what kind of music would sound good in a building like that. I thought, it has to be interruptible, because there's announcements. It has to work outside the frequencies at which people speak in a different speeds from speech patterns so as not to confuse communication. And it has to be able to accommodate all the noises that airports produce. And most importantly for me, it has to have something to do with where you are and what you're there for. Flying, floating, and secretly flirting with death. Love the... <laughs> yeah, no, this is awesome. Yeah. And this is why he's on Weird Studies, is because he's coming up with ideas that sound like they go perfectly into our conventional interneted world, and yet scratch the surface, and they're quite a bit deeper and more devious than they look. He writes, I want to make a kind of music that prepares you for dying, that doesn't get all bright and cheerful and pretend you're not a little apprehensive, but which makes you say to yourself, actually, it's not that big a deal if I die. I rather like that. I love this paragraph. I highlighted it because he's really kind of just concretely showing us what ambient music can do in the sense that it, in changing the structure of our attention within an established kind of pre-existing space, it allows us to see more of that space. And there's the music. Okay, I hear it. I'm, I'm not going to mention it again. I just want to mention to listeners that it's playing now. I have to figure out how to make it quieter, though. Yeah, it's loud. And it's funny because that feeling, actually, it's not that big a deal if I die, is a thought I've had in airports before. Yeah. And I think this this idea he gets to of like that to be in an airport is to flirt with death. I think this is true. It's something that's essentially true about the experience of airports. It's funny because airports have come up in our conversation before in the context of non-places. We were talking about Marc Auger's book, Non-Places, fantastic book, about these vast, modern, smooth spaces that are categorically different from traditional places that are centered on a hearth or an altar or a kind of like... Um, these kind of analog spaces of the pre-modern world, these modern spaces have no center. They're just spaces through which one circulates as a kind of unit in a network, you know, an airport, yeah. a shopping mall, etc. And we were comparing those spaces to 
ancient depictions of Hades, of the underworld, as this realm of shades circulating ghost-like through vast spaces, um, propelled by forces that are not their own autonomous will. And I think that here he makes this link between airports and death. It kind of confirms what we were saying there about non-places. Of course, the idea with airports is that you're going to get on a plane and partake of the miracle of human flight, which is in itself amazing and also scary to the archetypal mind that we all have. Uh, In a way, to be in an airport is to be in the underworld. You're preparing to take an action which for thousands of years was reserved for the dead. You're going to fly. Mm. And I think that that is part of the spatiality of an airport. It's built into it. And he has tapped into it so that when we listen to ambient music, like Music for Airports, his album, we are actually getting a little closer to to the essence of what an airport is, strangely. Hmm. The weirdness of airports um, and the weirdness of spaces and music and all the other stuff, too. But I just wanted to bring that out because it really struck me. I mean, I love what you were just saying about how this is music that kind of tells us what an airport is. Mm -hmm. One way of phrasing this might be it turns... What is kind of an uninhabitable space, a a space that human beings can traverse but can't live in, into a place that you're only... Maybe a A zone. I'm not sure. Well, that was one of the specific qualities of a zone that we teased out, was that it's a space you can go through but you can't live in. No, an airport is like the satanic inversion of the zone. Well, those no, zones can be very negative. Those zones, yeah, but anything can happen. Like however negative they are, oh, you I might see what you're get saying. chewed to hamburger for no reason that anybody will ever discover. But at least something interesting happened. At airports, it's the fucking opposite. Nothing will ever happen at an airport. Now we get, we'd have to segue into zones, but that's I love that you said that because it's maybe we're talking about different types of zones. But there's a space like an airport for me is very much zonal in the sense that nothing happens and yet everything happens. I don't know. I'm just going on my own experience of airports. And most of the flying I've done in my life was for work. So I was always in a particular mindset. And when I'm working, when I'm making a documentary, any chance I get to not work during that time is amazing because when you're directing, you're basically working all the time on something in the evenings you're working on the next day and blah, blah, blah. But whenever I step into an airport, I give myself license to just float. Hmm, That's interesting. And for that reason, although nothing is happening in an airport from the point of view of the security cameras, hopefully when something happens in an airport, it's usually a bad thing. You want things to run smoothly and you want only (laughs) non-events. You want just the flow of, of, uh, of process. Predictable processes. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, my mind is freest in airports. I remember writing some of our 13,000 word emails as I was traveling to Colorado to hang out with Stuart Davis. Hmm. You know how when your mind reaches out for an idea or for a reference, I find that process infinitely easier in an airport. I just find it very easy to think. That doesn't make it zonal. I agree. I'm just right now just coming out with all my feelings and about airports. That's but interesting. It's an interesting place. It's an inter- non-places are interesting. I've always felt very cozy in non-places, as scary oh, as they are. I um, kind of get that. But I think probably I have a different response to airport. I just hate flying. I just hate flying so much. Hate it so intense. I'm not scared of it. I just really hate it. The um, I'll tell you this, people at home. This is uh, free advice and worth every penny. Always travel 
with blaze orange heavy duty foam earplugs. It will make your experience so much better because the thing that stresses me out about airports above all is the uncontrolled sound. And it's not just crying children. That actually doesn't bother me that much. I am an old hand at soothing crying children. No, it's like when you're in an airport and they have all the TVs set up to cable news, they're all showing CNN. Yeah. There's some airports where they put the TV monitors at regular intervals, cunningly disposed around the airport so that there's nowhere you can go and be free of the sound of fucking CNN. Right. And I can't tell you how much I hate that. Yeah, yeah. And quite apart from that, the constant stream of incomprehensible announcements and I and don't also know, the, all... you know, one of the essays that um, we read in preparation for this, the one by, uh, what's her name? Anahid Kasabian, sorry. She gets into this idea of haptic sounds, of like how sound uh, hearing is just a very refined and specialized form of touch which I love. Yeah. And you're right. The haptic experience of an airport is very interesting because you'll have the constant drone of information, right? The CNN playing constantly and the announcements. But other than that, underlying that is a kind of strange quiet because the space is very vast. Sound, human voices get lost in the... I'm thinking of a big mm -hmm. airport here. I'm thinking of Pearson Airport in Toronto. But at the same time, you'll also have these sudden intrusions of like really loud aggressive and abrasive sounds like when you get onto when you you leave the airport and you get onto that get into that tunnel to get to the plane all of a sudden it's really like these loud fans or this you can hear the motor of the plane or whatever like you know the whole experience sonically is actually quite jarring and strange yeah 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 and yeah. haptic is the haptic quality of sound the way that sound and touch are actually on a continuum with one another is a valuable thing to mention here. Cause like, okay, you know, do you ever write a, like a shopping list or you write something on a piece of like printer paper or notebook paper and you fold it up and you put it in your pocket and you carry it around with you and you end up holding onto that paper for a long time for one reason yeah. or another to stays in your pocket. And after a while it's grimy and uh, it's just been touched so much. The paper is sort of crinkly. It's sort of softer and beginning to lose some of its integrity. That's yeah. always how I feel at the end of air travel. When I get to my destination, I feel handled and soiled by all that touching, yeah. the endless fucking touching. Yeah. All those sounds are like little, you know, when you're around kids, sometimes you can get like touched out, like kids are all over you. And I mean, like we're both dads, so I'm yeah. assuming you know what I'm talking about. You know, little kids, like when they're two or three years old, they'll come up to you with their hands covered in jam or whatever it was they were just eating. Mar marmite. Marmite. <laughs> they're sticky little hands and, you know, and it's just sort of like that feeling. Yeah, it's true. You do. That's feel what it's like. All those sounds are like the accumulation of little touches until I feel like that soiled, handled, worn piece of paper that's been sitting in your pocket for a month. <laughs> I love it. And it's also the security and the often the customs and that sort of you just feel kind of violated after air travel. And this is why I like wearing earplugs blaze orange so people can see that shit from across the <laughs> concourse. Right. And they know there is a man that does not want to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, anyway, so like, uh, 
Maybe we should talk about Brian Eno. Maybe yes. we should bring it. Maybe let's, let's bring now it back. would be maybe now would be an excellent moment for a card from the oh, oblique strategy stack. Go. How do we get back? I've got the deck right here, so I'll draw one. Okay. Remove let's check this out. Remove ambiguities and convert to specifics. <laughs> I think that is excellent <laughs> advice for this stage of the conversation. So here's a specific. The actual gestation of the idea, the origin story for ambient music that Eno gives us in his liner notes. So the story is that he had had a auto accident. I think he was hit by a car and he was recovering in hospital and his friend Judy Nylon came to pay him a visit and left a recording of, I think, 18th century harp music, which is in other words, music that is going to have a very low natural level anyway, very unaggressive music. And she put it on to play for him and then left, but the stereo was busted, like one channel was out and the volume was set too low. And in any event, it was like raining out. And so there was a fair bit of white noise. And so the experience he had of listening to this music, and keep in mind, he was injured, bedridden, and uh, unable to adjust the stereo setting. So he's just sort of having to sit there listening to an album that is not presenting itself to his full awareness. That kind of expert listener, that full frontal awareness of music is not even possible under these conditions. And he says this line, I love this. It was raining hard outside and I could hardly hear the music above the rain, just the loudest notes, like little crystals, sonic icebergs rising out of the storm. I couldn't get up and change it, so I just lay there waiting for my next visitor to come and sort it out. Gradually, I was seduced by this listening experience. Notice he doesn't say seduced by the music. He was seduced by the listening experience. Right. I realized that this is what I wanted music to be. A place, a feeling, an all-round tint to my sonic environment. But, you know, recently when I was preparing for this, I went for a walk with my dog and I was walking through the IU Bloomington campus, which is a very beautiful campus. And it's a beautiful sunset and the sun's slanting coppery across the campus. And you know, in a situation like that, when the sun is just about to set, only the things that are sticking up above the level of buildings and trees and whatnot will catch that light. And as the sun sets, the angle of the light changes fairly quickly. And so while you're walking, you can see this play of this golden coppery light on different buildings and surfaces. And you can see how it sort of shifts. Long shadows. Yeah. Yeah. Long shadows, deepening shadows. And you're walking through this landscape and you're part of this process. And this was beautiful music to listen to this. Yeah. And it was funny because it neither monumentalized the scenery, which as I say, was very beautiful. It didn't tell me anything about the scenery. It didn't say this is a happy scene. Yeah. It didn't say this is a sad or melancholy it's scene. It's unsentimental. Though, yeah. Yes. Right. Even right. though when you're listening to a lot of music for airports, it has, uh, like, for example, the track we're listening to now, the second track on side one, which has a kind of a melancholy quality to it. It's not a melancholy of emotion, if that makes any sense. It's not an emotion that is applicated to the things in your environment when you were listening to this as environmental music. What it does is it creates an environment in which wherever you are, you feel like you should be there. And I found that a very interesting result. Oh, wow. That's a nice way of putting it. It calls you to, to use a technical term, because it might be useful, the hexady of a moment, the, mm. the thisness of a moment. 
a kind of specific now, not an eternal bland now, not the eternal now of the airport, but the specific now of that sunset at that moment with your with that dog, etc. Like it situates you. And you're right, it's melancholy without being sentimental, because in a certain sense, I think the basic energy of nature is a kind of melancholy. And I think that he's managed to create music that calls us to an affect outside of emotion, a kind of affectivity that is nature in a sense, that is the phenomenological experience of nature. Like, is it melancholy or is it just what it is? But something being yeah. just what it is, is melancholy. Because something that exists in itself, that presents itself in its own self-existence as purely itself. That, that's what I get when I look, for example, at a beautiful sunset over a, a city. Or when I look at a tree, when I'm out hiking and my, my attention focuses on a particular tree or rock, like a moss-covered boulder. The thisness, the hexady of the rock, of the tree, it's simple being. It's simple being thereness. <laughs> yeah. To me, registers as something melancholic, something yeah. sad. Yeah. But not yeah. sad in a negative way. It's hard to explain. Yeah. Well, it's been said yeah, before I, by others. It's something, <laughs> it's, some, it's something I think of as mere thusness. Exactly. I mean, to get all Buddhist on you, you could say that Shoot. the mere thusness of any object always contains the hint of its own dying. Yes, you know? exactly. And this is classic, impermanence. classic Theravada in Buddhism, something that's called the three characteristics, impermanence, no self, and unsatisfactoriness. Meditators in the insight tradition, which is a version of Theravada practice, will meditate on objects of meditation, like the breath or thoughts or the pain in your knee, and will perceive the unsatisfyingness and impermanence and not-selfness of each thing. And the argument goes that those are the fundamental characteristics of things, of everything, regardless. Nothing will give you satisfaction. Everything will end. As Dogen says, Flowers die even though we love them. Weeds spread even though we hate them, right? Yeah. And the idea is that there isn't everything that we can experience, that quality is encoded. And so from that point of view, yeah, the mere existence of a thing, for example, a ray of coppery golden sun on the side of the Indiana Memorial Union as I'm walking across campus, has its own little bit of melancholy baked into it. Absolutely. And you could say that there's something in Eno's music, especially if we're talking stylistically, this particular track, second track on side one, yep. where everything is suspensions. That's a technical musical term where you have a dissonance that you then resolve into a consonance. And it's like, it's like popping a, like a sour patch candy into your mouth. And you get that little bit of sour and then the sweetness that follows. But it's, a movement in music that expresses a kind of a dying fall, a something that is going out of existence just as you see it. Exactly. You know, that's a music stylistic term, something that Eno did in processing the voices. I thought these were electronically created voices, but actually the recordings of singing, but the sounds are put in an envelope that 
softens the attack and the decay in a certain way so that it sounds very spongy and it's lacking a lot of the kind of grit that actual vocal performance has. So even though it is a vocal performance, everything is kind of smoothed and that too, in some way I'm not articulating, works the same way as those suspensions. Something that is always giving you the sense of a dying fall. Something that even as you touch it, it's already slipping through your fingers. Exactly. I love it. I love it. There's a beautiful essay by Freud, which I've brought up before, called uh, On Transience, which is really worth reading. It's Freud's own way of trying to get at this feeling of impermanence that the Buddhists articulate so beautifully and poetically. And what's amazing is that, well, I mean, when Eno in his liner notes says that he wanted a music that emphasized and accentuated the idiosyncrasies of a space, of the space in which it plays, instead of trying to blanket them or to subsume the idiosyncrasies in a kind of monolithic essence that like uh, the way that Muzak does, like Muzak is constantly telling you that What's happening now is all figured out. The world you're in has been completely mapped. The emotional landscape mm. that's available to you at the shopping center is the landscape of emotion as such. There is no way to interact with the space except in accordance with how the Muzak tells you to interact with it. That's exactly what I called artifice in my book. Like, Artifice is using the aesthetic to consolidate a pre-existing, pre-established design structure of being. Whereas art, great art, and I would say that Eno's ambient albums definitely qualify as great art, they remind you of the impermanence. They remind you of the transience of the world by embodying in themselves that transience. The transience of the music calls attention to the transience of the space in which the music plays, calls attention to the transience of your own passage through this world. Yeah. It connects you to radical mystery, to the radical mystery of our presence here. And so in doing that, it performs a powerful political gesture. It's relativizing things that we've been told were not relative, for instance. Like anything could happen in an airport. We just need the right music to remember that, you know?
pull another card. Sure. I'll, I'll shuffle it again, though, first. Towards the insignificant. <laughs> I never have any trouble with that. But yeah, let's talk. <laughs> but maybe this is a warning. It's like, maybe we're getting a little cosmic here. Maybe we should talk about trivialities. So here's sure. a triviality. A favorite memory. One of my favorite memories involves side A of discrete music, which is also just called discrete music. When I was in high school, my best friend, Mitch, and I were fortunate that Mitch lived next door to a kind of ne'er-do-well stoner dude who had boomeranged back to his parents. He'd been to the big city, he'd spent some time in Toronto, had gone to college, and then just kind of done nothing. I wonder whatever happened to Joe. Anyway, Joe lived next door to Mitch, and Joe had tapes of all these different, like Brian Eno and King Crimson and Captain Beefheart and all this music that's now kind of the 101 hipster syllabus, right? right? But at the time, you know, I mean, before the internet and shit, it was hard to find this stuff. You had to know a guy, you know, sometimes these albums were like out of print or at least you had to go to Toronto to get them. You weren't going to find them in Sudbury, Ontario. Anyway, so Mitch introduced me to all this stuff. And this is where I started listening to a lot of Brian Eno. And I remember Mitch had a, his house was on a lake. I mean, there's a million lakes in Sudbury. It's just all lakes. Yeah. And so we would go and swim in this lake. And I remember he would put up a boom box, just blasting discreet music. So if you were standing at, like close to it, it would have been like unpleasant and definitely not the volume <laughs> that this music is supposed to be listened to. But out in the lake, swimming around in the lake, it's just, it's very quiet, and it's just these little sounds kind of tinkling across, like a wind would gust, and you would catch, like, more of the sounds, and right. then the wind would shift, and you couldn't hear it. And it was magical, a kind of magical experience, like the use of this ambient music in just, uh, you know, I was, I was 16 or something, splashing around in a lake. Sorry. Now, that's insignificant. That's trivial. That's some trivial oh. shit right there. That's not even an interesting story, but it is an origin story. This is how I got into Eno. It's funny because the way that Mitch was playing the Eno seems to be exactly the way Eno would have intended it to be played. A little bit like his harp music that was mingling and mixing with the sound of rain. He wanted to create a music that didn't just impose a space on you, but somehow conspired with whatever space you happen to be in to create, a, I guess the right word is a world, a world. This is what I love about ambient music is that it's emphasis on spatiality, on worldness, right? And one point mm. in his liner notes, mm. he mentions how for the first time in the 70s, people were finding out that you could create virtual acoustic spaces. Right. Which means like spaces that are not available in nature, speculative worlds through sound. Yeah. And uh, one of his early concepts was precisely that imaginary landscapes to him was uh, we can use sound to create worlds. And so I've always under being, a, I'm a very visual person. I've always listened to ambient music. I've always seen this music you can see. You know, a sound you can mm. see. That's what ambient mm. music is. It renders sound visually to me. I have a, like a, what's the word? Synesthesia. Right? So whenever mm. I hear sound, mm. I see images. So for me, like ambient music, it just it turns into this geometric space in my mind. And mm. 
and that to me seems to be the crux of it. I mean, I've, I only have one musical idea. I've had a lots of musical ideas because I used to be a musician. I used to write songs and I had lots of ideas within music, but an idea about music. I only have one. I put it in the liner notes for Pierre Yves' album. And that is that, and I'm not even sure if I'm the first person to have this idea. And I probably, I'm, I'm almost certain I'm not. But the idea that compels me and always has was that with the advent of recording technology, space went from being an extensive aspect of sound to an intensive aspect of sound. So whereas before, the spatiality of a piano really had everything to do with, first of all, the internal acoustics of the piano itself, like how the, the resonance of the piano itself, but then also how the piano resonates within a pre-existing space. So in a church or in a concert hall or in a, mm-hmm. in a salon or a, you know, a, a conservatory, whatever. Right, um, right, right. Whereas afterwards, once I can record that piano, I'm also recording the room that the piano is playing yeah. in. And then the sound yeah. I'm, that comes out of the process, what I play back to you is not just the piano, it's the piano plus the space. And so space becomes folded into the sound of the instrument. Space becomes intensive instead of being extensive. Oh, to I sound. see what you're saying. You what it I'm becomes saying? an attribute of the sound rather than a contingency that we can kind of screen out of our perception. Exactly. In the same way that, like, you know, you go to an art gallery, you're not really paying attention to the wall behind the painting. Right. So you're talking about a shift from the background to the foreground, which we've talked about, for example, in relation to McLuhan. That's where I first brought up this idea. But what it makes possible afterwards is stuff like what Brian Eno was doing. He actually brings this up. He says that the first experiments in this direction were done in the context of radio dramas, where they wanted someone to sound like they were outside. Right. So they had, right. to, they had to modify the studio space to get, you know, uh, more reverberation or whatever was necessary in order to make the person sound like they were. So to create, to, they had to build space into sound. It couldn't just hmm. be a neutral voice really close to your ear, like really close to the microphone. It had to be, they had to open up the sound. And then he was saying, like, I'm using that and bringing it into art. Like, I'm trying to bring it into music to make music spatial. And like bands like Radiohead, which would never have existed uh, without Brian Eno, obviously. Hmm. One of the things that these bands were doing was bringing spatiality into music. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, for that matter, yeah. Sgt. Peppers, which we did a whole show on, is kind of often pointed to as the kind of godfather of, of that whole tendency. The idea that your job description as a musician goes from creating music, music conceived as a kind of um, almost spatially neutral content, content abstractable from the location of its performance, which is an idea that is very easy if you're spending a lot of time with music that exists in score. Yeah. Because you're like, no, the music doesn't exist in phenomenally. It exists ideally in, in the space of the score. Uh, yeah. But it's when multi-tracking and stereo become possible that you can start creating virtual musical objects that exist in a kind of 3D, 360 degree sphere around your head and in your head as well. You can, you can give listeners the feeling that there are sounds emerging from inside their skull or somewhere over there. So creating virtual environments becomes part of your job description as a composer. And Eno, more than almost anyone else, has dedicated a life of music making to exploring the consequences of that basic idea. Yeah, absolutely. 
Leslie and I have been attending uh, an Eastern Orthodox divine liturgy just right now for purely aesthetic reasons. Uh, not purely aesthetic reasons to to see what it's like because it's very different. But one of the things. It's so fun. This is so funny saying for purely aesthetic reasons. Just I have this imagination of you as Flaneur wearing like a green silk suit <laughs> with like an ascot, yeah. sipping your absinthe at the back of the church, just like mm, <laughs> delightful, Delight, delightfully decadent. Mm, <laughs> So no, we've been going because I'm I'm really interested in it in it. But one of the things you you get from attending these divine liturgies is that the feeling you you always feel like you're late. This is uh John G. Henderson actually told me that he's on our Discord. He's a listener. Yeah, he's like you go in there, you always feel like you're late because stuff has been happening already for hours when you go in. There's already a cantor kind of singing litanies and stuff, and the whole thing is just kind of happening and. The power of it comes from the fact that it doesn't expect anything of you. It's not like a Roman Catholic or especially not like a, a lot of Protestant services where you have to participate. If you're not singing along, if you're not doing the replies, it's not happening. You're part of the performance. Whereas in these divine liturgies, it's like this magnificent machinery is activated. It's doing its thing and you just happen to walk in. And then you just stand there and behold it. But it really yes. is. It you're really stepping works. Into, you're stepping yeah. into a larger continuum. Exactly. So when, Which, when, by the way, is how Eno described what he was trying to accomplish in music. That yeah. any given thing of Eno's you listen to sounds like something that is coming from a longer continuum. He actually said that. Exactly. There you go. So, so your expression here is absolutely to the point. Okay, great. Because I wasn't sure it was when I started. But you get the sense that you're having a glimpse of something much bigger. That's how it's designed. For example, when the, uh, the Byzantines were trying to convert the Russians, well, the Kievan Rus uh, people, they were Russians, they were Vikings up there, but Slavs, they had this kingdom, this medieval kingdom up in what is now Ukraine and Russia, I believe. So the Byzantines were sending missionaries up there and they got, I think it was the Kievan Rus king or high lord, or I don't know what his title was, to come down to Constantinople and check out the scene. And he did with his retinue. And they went down there. I can only imagine the experience of being a medieval, essentially a Norseman or Slav, like a Northern barbarian coming down to Constantinople and seeing Hagia Sophia and stepping into that space and then experiencing Can you imagine? that. Yeah, they said- Can you imagine? They said they didn't know if they were in heaven or on earth because yeah. their impression was that they got completely transported into this other reality, which was entirely generated aesthetically yeah. for them. Yeah, yeah. You know? God, that's fascinating. So I've been thinking a lot about video games lately. Mm. I'm teaching a seminar for the master's musicology students at Indiana University on ludomusicology, which is a rather ridiculous sounding word, isn't it? But it just means the study of playing games in its vicinity to music, which means in practical terms, a lot of stuff about video game music, although the study of playing games applies to music and many other ways. A fellow named Roger Mosley, who has a book out called Keys to Play, where he thinks about the keyboard, like a piano keyboard, as a, an interface 
by right. analogy with a video game controller and it comes up with some really interesting ideas that come from that kind of thinking. So cool. Not just talking about video games, but I'm talking a lot about video games and thinking a lot about them. And one of the big questions that comes up right off the bat, if we're talking about video games, if this is an art form, what is it an art of? You know, we would say that like painting is an art of like Greenberg, you know, decoration of a two-dimensional plane. Or we would say that film is an art of moving images cut together. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. Music is a kind of an art of time. Right. What is a video game an art of? And one answer that comes pretty readily to everybody is it's an art of immersion, where the desideratum of a video game is that it puts you in a world, a virtual world, and the degree to which it immerses you in that world such that you don't want to leave or such that you develop a kind of experience of that world that is not like subject-object, but somehow crosses that subject-object divide. Like you're in this world, fully immersed in it, a part of it, coextensive with it. That's the name of the game in video game design. I would say the same about tabletop be interesting to try to find what the distinction is because obviously there is but yeah immersion in a world yeah yeah immersion absolutely. in a world and i think that's absolutely true of rpgs and thinking about how we have many more art forms of immersion now than we did in the 1950s music has become an art of immersion at least it can be saying what music is inherently is a fool's errand because music can be so many things but uh, and perhaps it's a fool's errand with video games i don't know but the point is that like the specific vocation of music as and and your job as a composer of being somebody in the business of crafting spaces for your ears to dwell within mm. that seems to be of a piece with the logic of our age, because it is an impulse that is being expressed in parallel across multiple forms. Yeah. And the, the rise to dominance of video games and gaming culture generally is, among other things, a testament to the power of the artistic vector, or the, the, the artistic dimension of immersion. And so that's another way maybe to think about this as well. That is very interesting. To go back to the Muzak stuff we were discussing earlier, we have to be aware of, I guess, both sides of this development. Because I think you're absolutely right that immersion has become the kind of holy grail of aesthetic work today. What you want to do is to create, I mean, it goes into marketing. They, they, the marketers talk about brand, absolutely. I was brand just experiences. Say that. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the creation of immersive environments in which the line between subject and object becomes dotted, if not completely blurred and, and, and zigzaggy, this is what artists and artificers are working on right now for good yes. and for ill. I think that we can yeah. think of all, we were talking about airports. An airport is a space of control. You might argue that the control is justified in the, the context of an airport because it is so important that things run smoothly so that planes don't crash into each other and people don't bring bombs onto planes and whatnot, or box cutters for that matter. The point is that you might or say- Or tiny that, little bottles of shampoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Or a bottle of mezcal that you bought at the duty-free in one airport and then they took away at the other airport. That's what happened to me. I was so pissed off. Or, or weed. Yeah, exactly. Weed or cocaine. You know, they have like weed drop boxes at O'Hare Airport now because, you know, like Illinois is a legal state. But like if you're flying to, from Chicago to Indianapolis. You're going to do some real time if you forget to dispose of that. Yeah. Leave your weed in Chicago. Yeah. Who's emptying the weed boxes? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I want that job. So um, anyway, anyway, sorry. My, my point was simply that there's a sinister side to all this. Um, yeah. And the willingness with which we give up our subjectivity, I think. Something I got from reading that other piece, that uh, Anahid Kasabian piece. As someone who was for a long time steeped in Deleuzean thought and kind of post-structural ideas of the formation of subjectivity and the political slash economic forces that go into shaping subjectivity, I, I really love this essay. I thought it was filled with interesting insights. It's called Ubiquitous Listening. And she's talking about yeah. ubiquitous musics, which are basically, I guess, ambient music in Eno's sense would be one form of ubiquitous music. But she's FYI, talking about, yeah. this is a version of the introduction to a monograph that Kasabin wrote called Ubiquitous Listening. This I got from the audio culture reader, which if you are interested in the kinds of things we're talking about on this episode, I strongly recommend buying this. It is a wonderfully curated selection of writings on a lot of the kinds of things we're talking about, including this. Anyway, sorry, I interrupt, yes. interrupted no, you. No, very important to to mention that. I had that impression because there's a lot of... Um, Little ellipses. Ellipses, yeah, in this essay. We are very willing and we seek out experiences where our subjectivity can be compromised. And there are good reasons for wanting to do that, of course, because subjectivity is packed with all kinds of historical forces that one should seek to liberate themselves from and all that. And I stand by a lot of the things that this kind of post-structural movement, I guess, endorses. At the same time, I'm increasingly wary or disturbed by our celebration of subjective obliteration. Mm. Our enthusiasm about networks and rhizomes, it's something that we need to know about. We need to investigate this stuff. But at the same time, I think we need to be very careful before we frame subjectivity as a purely artificial bourgeois concept. I, I don't know. I just think that we have to be careful about that. As I was reading her essay, I made a two-column list of adjectives. Uh, and on the left, it was all the adjectives that you would associate with this kind of rhizomatic, post-structural, immersive kind of aesthetic in the right-hand column were all these adjectives that you would associate with this patriarchal, traditionalist, you know, overly striated epistem. You know, one example is affect versus concept, right? So even on this show, we have often talked about, emphasized the importance of the affect, the, the priority or primacy of affect over concept. You get to the truth, you get to the world by getting rid of your concepts and just kind of diving into the affects. And this is really kind of a, a central piece of like philosophical, metaphysical thought. If you look at the literature that's been produced in the last three or four decades, and I'm behind that, but it occurred to me as I was reading yesterday that the whole affective space, that pre-subjective 
mixed rhizomatic space in which that kind of Nietzschean will to power kind of vortex mm. of mm. pure force that is championed or, or given priority by post-structuralism, that space has presumably always existed. What is fragile and needs to be consciously preserved is the other column, the conceptual. You can, you can live without concepts, but you can't live without affects. You can live in a kind of a purely embodied somatic sense, but what you risk losing is the attentive, egoic, centered, rational yeah. part. <laughs> it's yeah. just, so they're not symmetrical. One is the world as it always is beneath the surface, and the other one is the world that we shape through our attention. That mm -hmm. through our attention, we actually create this other dimension of reality, which is the conceptual, the, the rational, the intellectual, for lack of a better term. So I just, I'm a little bit more wary than I once was about putting the emphasis entirely on one side. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I Me think too. that what I found interesting, just to bring it back to Eno, then I'll shut up, is that I find that Eno is actually working in the service of... He's a very conceptual person. In that documentary, he says, I've never had an idea that was purely intuitive. All of my artistic ideas are conceptual. And so he's very much someone who thinks within that tradition of, of intellect and thinking about things and looking at things directly. And then through that, being able to see the existence of that other side, mm. that pre-conceptual affective side, and then choosing moments where one will compromise their subjectivity in order to kind of blend into a kind of more primordial world and then being able to reemerge from that. It just seems to me like the whole drift of, of what's going on right now in our society is all in favor of a kind of abandonment of subjectivity so that we all become nodes in a network. And I find <laughs> that that can be kind of scary to me. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole internet age to me is just a long series of episodes where something you thought was a beautiful thing that we don't have yet somebody's figured out how to monetize it and make it shitty yeah well let me give you an example of what i think you're talking about is the idea of content now i'm working on a piece of writing right now that i'm going to present to the iu musicology colloquium in a couple of weeks and among other things talking about well what it's about is public scholarship and I've always thought of weird studies as my main venue of public scholarship, at least since 2018 when we started the show. And needless to say, I'm in favor of it. I'm in favor of weird studies and whatever model of scholarship it can be said to represent. However, how would I characterize that? I, I, in this thing I'm writing, I started off thinking of all the different public scholarship projects that my colleagues work in. And there's a wide variety of them. And it's very hard to generalize about them. And I'm realizing that what I'm doing is one little part of public scholarship, a specific part. And I was trying to think of a name for this category. And then really the logical one is content creation. And what we do is we're creating content. And I use that word unironically all the time with you. I'm always saying stuff like, hey, do we have any content for the Patreon and blah, blah, blah. You just fall into it naturally. It's yeah. a, the term of art in this space, right? And in this piece of writing I'm doing, I'm trying to think what is content. And one idea that I've been playing with is that content is intellectual work or any kind of work, communication, art, whatever, conceived in terms of filling time, 
Right. So it's a temporal container, could be a podcast release schedule, or it could be even the interval of an individual podcast. We've got to have some content. We need to have something to talk about. It doesn't even have to be on a timetable. It could be a diffuse sense of time passing. If you are some internet niche micro celebrity, say you're quote unquote Instagram famous yeah. or TikTok famous, the currency of your fame is currency, like being current, ha- right, giving out right. a steady stream of things in time. Like, oh, I haven't updated my Instagram in several days. Or if you're being current really a- and being a current. In the electrical sense. Yes, exactly. signal. Which has the effect of moving everything away from, as it were, a vertical axis, which I might call works. You know, think of like the term, a great work of scholarship or a great work of art. That makes sense, right? Yeah. But is there such a thing as a great work of content? You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Like what we're doing, I think is valuable. I happen to believe in our project and I think that we are doing a kind of scholarship, but the thing that makes it hard to understand as scholarship, or at least the challenge, and something that you have to explain to people who maybe are rightfully put off by the content model of creation and consumption is the way that scholarship can be reformatted on this much more temporal axis. Right. This kind of Y-axis of time. That instead of storing up all the time of, like, say you're writing a book, and it takes you years to research it and write it, and all those years are telescoped into the book, the, you know, 220 pages between hardcovers or whatever, right? It's a work, a, a kind of a vertical construction yeah. that will stand as a monument in scholarship forever, at least ideally, right? But the kind of work we're doing is serial. We were talking about this in our last episode, how the way we develop ideas through repetition variation, an idea might come up in a fairly crude form on one episode, and then we'll return to it. And through our conversation over time, we put flesh on its bones and we, we elaborate it and we can do something with it. It becomes a tool that we can use, right? Rather than taking that whole process and telescoping it into a finished composed work. And the point is that you can do something creative and interesting. I like to think that weird studies is using that basic temporal flow model for creation to do something of interest and even possibly, who knows, lasting value. But the point is that we are having to pitch our tent in a field that is always already kind of temporalized. Horizontalized. It has no It is horizontalized. Yes, exactly. And, And within this world, this is the world of smooth space. This is the world of flows and intensities and rhizomes and all that Deluso Guattarian stuff. Right. That back in the 80s, we would read Deleuze and Guattari. Well, maybe you would. I was not reading anything philosophical in the 80s, but like. Neither was I. Um, I was born in 77. So I wasn't oh, that yeah, precocious. Right. <laughs> uh, but in the late 90s, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but my point is like when people were first really digging Deleuze and Guattari, yeah. it was because they were talking about a world of smooth spaces and you know intensities and flows and rhizomes and and it's like well that's clearly not the world we have this is a world of reified and concretized capital right and uh if only we could break on through to the other side and get to that world of flows and like 
some asshole figured out how to do it and make money out of it. And now that is the logic of the culture in which we find ourselves. And now what I take you to be saying is, hey, maybe there were some virtues in that reified, solidified cultures of verticalities. Yeah. And I agree with you. Yeah, to the old uh, Diloso Guattari, we've had enough of trees. Yeah, I can see how you felt that way in the 60s in France and the university system there, the extremely magisterial system in which these men were educated. But now that we've had now a good 20 years of rhizomatic flows, I find that remembering that trees, if nothing else, provide some shade some shelter from the blinding sun of yes yeah you know, from the blinding sun that perceives all vertical distinctions as neutral and annulled before they even arise that that levels yes. everything down i mean the most rhizomatic space you'll ever find is the desert right mm-hmm. where things it's a purely horizontal space where the landscape it's, itself will change from day to day according to the wind patterns and how the sand moves about so yeah. I think that we need to remember the vertical and um, you can scale that idea on multiple levels. Like you can scale it all the way up or down. I think that that's. Or to put it in terrotic yeah. terms. Sometimes you need a tower. Yeah. Sometimes you, need, you, sometimes you need to rediscover the virtues of the tower. Yeah. Or the, the tower emperor. card of the tower. Yeah. Or the, the emperor. The tower, yeah, that's what we were talking about last time. Judgment. And I think that Eno does that. Yeah. You would think, listening to Music for Airports, that this was written by the most intuitive dude ever. Like, a guy who just <laughs> lives by intuition. But as it turns out, it's incredibly calculated what he's doing. And there is as much intellect in his work as there is affect. Yeah. And not only that, but the music, according to his liner notes, is intended to make us aware of our space and to allow us to gain new autonomy, to assert our autonomy in our space without, without implying that this means that we are little emperors who are going to, you know, mete out judgment on our environments or whatever. And it's not like that. It's the ability to choose how one navigates these worlds. And I think that in that way, he's showing us a kind of synthesis of the vertical and the horizontal that maybe we should be paying attention to. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.